0: To Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast of the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of October 2020 and this is episode 178. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to three academics about their new book on recruitment in Ireland during the Great War. They are Dr Timothy Bowman, a reader in modern history at the University of Kent, Dr William Butler, the head of military records at the National Archives in the UK and finally Dr Michael Wheatley, an independent researcher who writes on 20th century Irish politics. Their book is called Disparity of Sacrifice, which examines military recruitment in Ireland during the Great War. This is published by Liverpool University Press. The three of them spoke to me over the interweb from different parts of the UK. Gentlemen, welcome to the uh, Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourselves and how you became interested in the Great War? Starting in alphabetical order, Tim, could we start with you?
1: Okay, I suppose I became interested in the Great War as many people do through history. My uh, great grandfather served in the Ulster Division, a um, rather unfashionable Army Service Corps attached to the Field Ambulance. So I knew a bit about his history uh, from, from an early age. And then when I was doing my degree at Queen's Belfast, uh, we looked at the Great War in various forms there and i became aware that there hadn't been that stage in early 90s there hadn't been that much work done on ireland in the first world war so well, that seemed to be a good area for a, a thrusting young academic as i then was to get involved in well
2: i think i became interested in the, in the first world war completely by accident uh, and and certainly interested in in ireland in the first world war by accident i i took a um an undergraduate course uh, on uh, the, the history of 20th century Ireland, taught by Tim. Uh, I was an undergraduate student of Tim's, um, and it, that was the first uh, Irish history I'd, I'd ever done uh, as, as a student. And, and then progressing onto my my masters, I, I then sort of came at uh, sort of the, the history of Ireland and the Great War in particular from from a propaganda angle. That was what my masters uh, was 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 on. It was on war and propaganda. And again, uh, almost by accident, perhaps by influence uh, from from Tim in, in particular uh, is, is sort of where, where that came from uh, really and then sort of having having done my PhD on, on on Ireland and military traditions in Ireland in the 19th and 20th century, obviously the First World War uh, came into that quite significantly as well and, and sort of here we are 10, 12 years later and, and I'm thankfully still still able to talk about it. And finally Michael.
3: Yes, well I came much later into academic life and my real fascination has been with political history and in particular with the complete mess that the British political system made of what they call in inverted commas the Irish question and this failure culminated in the only successful armed uprising in the British Isles in the last 300 years and the Great War was crucial of this because so many of the events about the, 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 the real collapse of, of the Union occurred during the Great War and it, it was crucial to the transformation of Irish politics. It acted as a, a huge accelerant of changes that were already there. So I come from it, if you like, from um, Ireland, the Union being run over by a bus and the bus being the Great War effectively.
1: So why did you write the book I suppose this is a, is a tricky one. There's a lot of myth-making about Irish involvement in the First World War, and mm-hmm. this is still seen effectively in sort of street history, in parts of Belfast, where you get the idea that all rally to the cause of empire in 1418, and this doesn't happen in southern Ireland. That then was redressed in a fairly major way, at by Callaghan in a paid thesis, and uh, David Patrick in a series of uh, book chapters. And we were rather unhappy with that sort of rebalance. The, the rebalance that was put in seemed to the other extreme, which suggested that politics and religion really didn't do with this the for enlisting, and also seemed to iron out a lot of the problems uh, between Great Britain and Ireland by suggesting recruitment rates were sort of all of the muchness in the British Isles. So looking at that, we thought that there was a uh, challenge, that interpretation, and to reconsider a lot of these reach factors uh, within recruitment in Ireland, of course, and Great Britain supplement on 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 that to say that
3: tim's absolutely right that, that that there are these two competing camps in terms of viewpoints about Ireland and the Great War one of them is that Ireland was a uh, some kind of discontented, oppressed colony on the outbreak of war, which was always only a grudging, reluctant participant. This is in complete contrast to, to like to the sort of the the the, the unionist the unionist view of of, of of themselves as totally willing participants in the war right from day one. But there's been a lot of, of what the Irish call revisionist history since then. And this is the other viewpoint, which is that Ireland have been pretty well assimilated into the British state, and that the UK really was more united than not on the outbreak of 1914. And in this view, the war and Easter Rising acted as a, a huge unanticipated accident that, that blew the Union apart. Um, and I think both views are defective and, and and an analysis of recruiting is the perfect way to test both views and see how the war actually um, uh, changed the course of Irish history.
0: Before we get into the detail of the book, could we start by building some context and look at two uh, interrelated issues? The first is the tradition of Irishmen serving in the pre-war British military. And secondly, the so-called Home Rule political crisis that dominated UK politics before the outbreak of the Great War. Taking the first subject first, what was the scale and involvement of Irish recruitment in the pre-war Victorian Edwardian
1: army? Um, If we were to go back to the early 19th century, so just sort of before the Victorian period, if you like, in the 1830s, it's thought that the British army was about 40% Irish and it's thought that's the sort of figure we're looking at during the Napoleonic Wars, so the idea that Wellington's army is disproportionately uh, Irish. Um, of course, then you get the Great Irish Famine, and there are fewer Irishmen, as, as the simple uh, truth of the matter. So those large figures go, but not entirely. There's still a pattern that you can follow through the 19th century of disproportionate Irish involvement. So in 1861, uh, 20% of the population of K. Is Irish, but 28.4% of the army is Irish, so still disproportionate of that stage. That figure only really settles down in 1911. When the Irish share of the UK population is about percent and the share of the army is about the sea. Uh, so that's quite interesting. you know, coming back to what Mike was saying about that idea of Ireland as a sort of part uh, of the British Empire. You do have a tradition of service uh, in the British Army and also a tradition, it should be said, of, of disproportionately Catholic service in the British Army, from what we can work out. If we look at the immediate pre war period, 1213 uh, recruitment rec- report, you have 380 recruits to the British Army from Belfast, and Belfast that was the largest city in Ireland, but from Dublin you have 832. So there, there are obviously different issues going on there. There are issues of nationality, there are issues of religion. There's also a lot to do with class we should reflect that Dublin was one of the more depressed cities, okay, whereas Belfast had a fairly booming industrial base, so job opportunities for men uh, are very different. So you have this pre-war pattern uh, for regular recruitment. Will's better place than to say more about the Special Reserve, but it's fair to say they had a, a very uh, extent part-time uh, soldiering uh, tradition, uh, which is built on. These are important because, particularly in rural Ireland, it seems to us that a lot of these pre-war patterns continue on to the war. Uh, I might turn over to the Will,
2: the, the Great War. Yeah, of course. So, you know, in, in terms of the, the part-time element, the, the the amateur element and, you know, particular in particular things like uh, organisations like the Militia um, and then from 1908 onwards the Special Reserve and, and then also the Imperial Yeomanry during the, the South African War and, and then the North and South Irish horse, really the, the, the patterns of recruitment, um i think follow that of of regular army, army recruitment what what you have throughout much of of the latter half of the 19th century and in, into the 20th century uh, leading up to the outbreak of the first world war is is a, a general decline um in in this sort of um in this the, this recruitment. So, um, and, and what you have, much like you have with regular recruitment, it's sort of uh, around garrison towns and and those sorts of areas that uh, that really form the basis of, of a lot of, of those organisations and a lot of those units in particular.
0: Okay, moving on to the second uh, subject, can you tell us about the Home Rule crisis and how this shaped the sort of political atmosphere of Ireland uh, before the outbreak of the First World War?
3: Point one, it's an an Irish crisis. It's a struggle between Irish nationalism and Ulster Unionism, but it became so pervasive that it it, it infects politics right across the United Kingdom. Um, And it led to bitter political conflict between Conservatives and Liberals. And specifically, it was triggered by the 1910 general elections, which gave the Irish Parliamentary Party the balance of power in the the House of Commons. Uh, So for the first time in decades, you've got a real chance that Irish self-government, which is basically um, Irish nationalist Catholic self-government, is a real possibility. Um, and, and this crisis lasts right up to the eve of the First World War, so you're talking of a period of more than four years. It does, it's not continuous, it ebbs and flows, but it's it's marked by um, rising tension, inflated threats, inflamed rhetoric, and it simply could not be resolved. And What you see increasingly as it goes on is the resort by both sides to extra-parliamentary, paramilitary activity. And specifically, Unionists would claim that there were effectively no limits, a famous phrase of Andrew Bona Law, to what they would do to stop Home Rule. In 1914, in the spring of 1914, a significant part of the British military establishment connived at outright disobedience of lawful government orders. This is known as the Caramute. And by the summer of 1940, nearly 300,000 Irish were members of rival, partially armed political militia. These are the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Irish Volunteers. So it's basically a mess. And in Britain, the, the, the fault lines on Home, home Rule just make the general fault lines in British politics wider and wider, because this is the period of the what's known as the struggle between the democracy, with a capital D, and privilege. So this is a period of class conflict, industrial unrest, the challenge of Labour, and, of course, the the bitter and violent conflict over the question of the wider suffrage, both the suffrage in general and women's suffrage. So it's anything but a period of an Edwardian summer. And, of course, nothing seemed to be able to lance the boil. And on the eve of the Great War, what you have is yet another attempt to broker a compromise that fails. And it, it's held no less in, in no lesser venue than, than Buckingham Palace. Um, you also have a situation in which um, what, a, what the Irish will call English troops, they're actually the king's own Scottish borderers, um, had just murdered, in inverted commas, three Dubliners in a shooting in, in Dublin. And many, many thousands of Irishmen are still drilling and training and arming themselves. So that's the situation that you have um, right up to the outbreak of, of the Great War.
0: Um, Archduke Ferdinand is murdered, we all plunge into the war and it sort of in a way intervenes on, on this domestic crisis that, that's happening in Britain and Irishmen respond to the call for volunteers. What was the level and nature of that response across those two communities you've already talked about? Um,
1: well of course on the outbreak of war we end up with the- initially the recall of reservists and that all goes forward um, as as normal as had been planned whereas there had been thoughts that Carson in particular would try to frustrate that Uh, so that is is an important move on the outbreak of of the war. After that we get a lot of recruitment that is deemed to be sort of non-political. There's a thought that you get very large numbers of unemployed men particularly in Dublin that enlist in the Farish division and the politics takes some time to play out. Politics becomes very important in recruitment, but it takes time to play out. So it's not until a full month after the outbreak of war that you start to get formed Ulster Volunteer Force enlistment into the British Army into what's to become the 36th Ulster Division. And that is very impressive when it starts off in Belfast. Uh, it starts off in Belfast 4th of September and goes through really until the 7th sort of, uh, of September with different UVF reds being designated certain days for the list. So in one week of that period there are almost 5,000 Ulster Volunteers that enlist uh, in one day uh, in in fact, the 6th of September 1914, Belfast has the highest recruitment rate, okay? So th- these have fact, to do with the volunteer force certainly be, be overlooked. But that's not murdered elsewhere in Ulster. Uh, In rural parts of Ulster, recruitment rates from Ulster volunteers are too high. That's particularly noticeable in Fermanagh. And there are a lot of concerns there about the nature of the home rule settlement. A lot of unionists think that home rule is still going to be enforced at some point during war because it's brought through in mid Mid September 14th, but then there's a delaying clause that it's not meant to be until war. A lot of Ulster volunteers don't really believe that arrangement will hold and think that if they British Army in their way, then through. There's a few other factors that I should say to do with uh, Belfast, particularly. We think of Belfast as a very big industrial city, but it sees a lot of layoffs at the outbreak of war. So the shipyard and Wolf was used to making what were factory liners. It's seen that the moment for those during the war, so so what's on the stocks is, is mothballed. Harlan Wolf has, at that time, no great tradition of building military Royal Naval ships. So, a lot of men are affected, unemployed. So, some of those that we would have thought of as the aristocrats of Edwardian Labour, very well-paid shipyard workers, are so employed, and it seems a fair number of them then enlist in the uh, British. The nationalist response is an interesting one in Ulster because it comes later than the uh, Ulster volunteer response. There's a lot more negotiation carried out by John Rebd and other national followers before they think that they advocate enlistment in the British Army, and this largely into the 6th Irish Division, which has a British break- term for Irish national volunteers. So we get formed recruitment there, in West Belfast were thought that get about 1,050 recruits from the Irish National Volunteers over a effectively four-month period into the Sixth Connaught Rangers, usually are associated associate with the, the west of Ireland. And that then means that Catholic Nationalist recruitment in West Belfast is second only to Protestant Unionist recruitment in other parts of Belfast. So Irish National Volunteers Belfast are a lot more likely to enlist than Ulster Volunteers in parts of the province. So that's an important caveat to put in there. Um, The Belfast enlistment is largely down, it seems to the activity of Devlin, MP for West Belfast. We then get recruit in Derry City amongst Irish national volunteers, pushed by Charles O'Neill, former soldier himself had served in (laughs) the Guard and is a figure in the Irish national volunteers there. And then in Emma we we got a fairly small contingent, about 67 Irish national volunteers that enlist there, led by John Ray, uh, who is the son of a uh, other figure in the Irish National Volunteers. So there's a lot of local, localised activity and it's only in Ulster that we see this formed Irish National Volunteer Recruit. The limits of this volunteer recruitment are really seen by about the spring of 1915. Um, the last huzzah of it formally I think we can identify is to do with the formation of some of the reserve battalions for the, the Ulster Division. After that things uh, sort of settle down into a pattern that it looks a little bit like the pre-war so we got a large spike in uh, the autumn and the spring of 1915 and then things sort of settled down very markedly uh, after that. I'll turn to Mike to say more about the, the south now. But it's
3: it's a bit of a paradox, really. Um, a lot of, of nationalist politicians who were pro-recruiting uh, talk about the miracle of, of Irish nationalist recruiting in the Great War. But the paradox is that at the same time, they were giving speeches all the time, denying charges that recruiting was mediocre. And you saw a very brisk upturn in recruiting in on the outbreak of war, hugely higher than pre-war levels. There's no doubt about it. You know, the, the depots saw very rapid um, turnover of men coming in in and being processed and joining up, you also saw um, a very prompt and swift mobilisation and call-up of uh, reservists. There were 30,000 reservists in Ireland on the eve of war, and not only they swiftly called up and they all join up, but they are cheered and paraded with bands on their way to war. And the overwhelming consensus, almost right from the outbreak of war, is that um, Germany is the villain, the aggressor, and that France and Belgium and England are the allies and deserve support in the war. So there is a very, very strong, overwhelming pro-war consensus, pretty well right across the island of Ireland, I would say. And you get profuse um, support activity, you know, comforts for the troops, uh, funds being raised for the troops' dependents, uh, homes being found for Belgian refugees, um, volunteer nursing is booming in Ireland. And there's no naivety about the war. It's, it's seen as a terrible event and there's no real sense of naivety that the war's going to be over terribly quickly and uh, the idea in ireland at least that people thought it was going to be over by christmas is is another myth um, the other thing is just as in ulster you get huge um early economic disruption particularly in the towns um and unemployment is a short time work don't forget there's been a, a major financial cry, crash effectively right across the uk um from the end of july on. so so that in itself as tim mentioned in 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 Ulster is um, a big spur to recruiting. So that's the miraculous side. of it. The mediocre side of things is that it, the numbers are, are really not that huge. Um, and by the second week of December, uh, the War Office is issuing a statement on behalf of Lord Kitchener, Lewis that recruiting into the first new army division in Ireland is pretty piss poor. Um, and I think if I remember Tim, it, you had the numbers years ago. Um, the 10th Division, the 10th Irish Division, I think it's up to about 5,000 men by this stage, which is roughly, you know, 40% or a third of comparable levels for for, for UK New Army Division. And, yeah. and the War Office statement says, if if you don't fill this division, we're going to have to fill it with non-Irishmen. And that gets a huge amount of press coverage um, in Ireland in the middle of September. So, yeah, in, in, in the South and West... Um, the mould is not broken. You get a lot more recruiting than you had before the war, but it's it's a lot more of the same. Uh, politics basically gets in the way. Um, in the first six weeks of the war, um, the Irish Party and John Redmond, who, who dominate um, Irish politics in the South and West, were simply not prepared publicly to advocate recruiting into the firing line until The Home Rule Act gets the royal assent, and that's finally achieved in the in about the 14th, 15th, 16th of September. And then Redmond comes out very strongly pro-recruiting, absolutely no doubt. The words are absolutely unequivocal in terms of being pro-recruiting, but the deeds of his organisation are not to promote recruiting, but to stage a putsch, effectively, and take control of the Irish Volunteers, the big nationalist paramilitary organisation and there are meetings all over the country at which volunteer companies and regiments are literally packed by the Irish party and their opponents, anti-war opponents, are kicked out and they're called recruiting meetings and in theory they're supporting a pro-war, pro-recruiting policy but all the time um, the Irish politicians who are leading this operation say we are doing this to secure unity and loyalty to our leader Redmond and we are not Acting as recruiting sergeant, they use that phrase all the time. So you don't see a huge upturn in recruiting after the Home Rule Act is passed. You actually see recruiting rates fall in the southwest after the Home Rule Act is passed. And by the end of 1914, recruiting in the south and west has has tailed off um, by by quite an appreciable amount, and it stays pretty inadequate right the way through 1915. There are a couple of big Phillips upwards when the War Office. And, and other organizations finally get their act together. And there are two very determined recruiting campaigns, um, official ones in the spring of 1950 and in November. But they're very short lived, there's no follow through. And by the end of 1915, you're running at, well, beginning of 1960, about 1,500 a month, which is way below the necessary level to, to keep the Irish regiments Irish and almost flatlined. So really, in Ulster, recruiting went up like a rocket and down like a stick. In in the south and west, the trajectory is a sort of steep upsurge, but nothing, nothing like as much as in Ulster. And then a, a rather dreary, gradual decline to very low levels by the end of 1950.
0: For those who actually joined um, Kitchener's Army, what was their motivation for enlistment?
3: I think really,
2: of course, motivations varied widely, um, person to person, just as they did in, in Great Britain. And, and obviously, Tim and Mike have, have teased out some of these issues already in terms of uh, economic necessity. Uh, but we can also point to things like a sense of adventure or patriotism, and again, uh, as sort of broad reasons. But sort of, I think if you look at some of the recruiting posters, actually, which were specifically designed for uh, Ireland and and its situation, because a lot of posters were created or adapted to to suit um, the specific circumstances in in Ireland, they often point uh, to at least an attempt to try and to tap into genuine concerns uh, in, in Ireland at the time. So you've got Images, especially in, in some of the earlier posters for for the 1950 the early nineteen fifteen campaigns, uh, that look at things like the plight of Catholic Belgium and and sort of you know posters that talk about uh, this is a quote that the Huns have desecrated and destroyed the cathedrals of France and Belgium. Irishmen, do your duty. Um, we also have things like, um, you know, is your home worth fighting for? It'll be too late to fight when the enemy is at your door. And again, these are sort of similar themes that that you see uh, across all of the United Kingdom, really. Uh, But then you have other sort of really specific um, posters which which draw on the circumstances in Ireland. So there's one which looks specifically at the farmers of Ireland, join up and defend your possessions. And again, that's really tapping into that uh, I I suppose lack and and certainly perceived lack at at this point of uh, recruitment in rural Ireland. You know, the the, the numbers are are almost negligible in in a lot of areas and and these sorts of things are are tapping into that and and certainly officials are are attempting to, to tap into that. You also have things that emphasise Ireland's military heritage, and, and Tim obviously already talked a lot about and spoke a lot about the, the Victorian and the Edwardian periods in that context. And they'll, in particular, depicting the four nations of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England working as one, and, and often actually at the front. You know, you'd sort of say, you know, come and join us. You know, and, and it's this sort of real idea of of teamwork across across the four nations there. And, and actually just picking up on this idea of, of filling Irish regiments with with uh, English recruits there' was even one uh, poster that exclaimed Irishmen are you going to allow famous Irish regiments to be filled with English recruits because you've you have not yet joined them avoid this and keep these splendid regiments Irish so you really get this idea of you know some of the the propaganda and, and the authorities really tapping into what is being said at an official level and, and actually then uh, how they are trying to, to Tackle this uh, lower these lower recruitment levels uh, on the ground as well.
1: There were a couple of things I wanted to, to say a bit more about. Um one is to do with military traditions, that you do get families with very firm military traditions. And you see this in some of the early casualties, um, Gallipoli retreat from Mons. You get sergeants killed, and it's obvious that they're the third or third generation of their uh, family in that regiment. So there's certainly that to be built upon. Um the other bit we, we might say a little bit more about the politics were sort of volunteering, number of, of volunteer forces leads men and um, if you're looking at round figures it's about 30,000 Ulster volunteers that in British wars right so that's 30,000 worse the top thousand, on the outside and for the Irish national volunteers it, it's very similar figures somewhere 30,000 31,000 but out of a force of about 180,000 and we can say something about how the politics dealt with there. Edward Carson when he's talking to men enlisting Ulster volunteers of course leader it's very clear with them that the settlement got over home rule isn't really very satisfactory but he says to them that if the empire goes down, go down, and says that Britain's difficulty will not be a result day, and that Australia is half-hearted British army. So he's quite upfront with men and sort of take followers of violence. Some Irish nationalist politicians are less uh, straightforward in this. The unionist press is a field day when Joe Devlin says to Melfast and Regiment of the Irish Tears that effectively home rule is an established fact, and that British democracy is nationalists, so now Irish nationalists by the British And of course the union press says, Well, you know, this complete trip the settlement of September uh, 1914, nobody should be to go in rule war. So, some of the politics is very messy, and you then perhaps have some things think that this rule, uh, some of uh cost, as they say, it, of unionism. But within the whole law, uh, these recruits are making up 6,000, about Irishmen who served in the British Army during the First World War. So, we shouldn't let the politics take over an analysis of them.
0: Okay, so, so how did recruitment in Ireland in the first half of the war compare to the rest of the, of the United Kingdom?
2: I think as, as we've already alluded to in, in short, uh, the numbers you're looking at for Ireland are much, much lower. Um, as in England, Scotland and Wales, you have the peak of recruitment in, in September 1914. Uh, and, and again, as Tim already mentioned, in Ireland that's predominantly down to things like the UBF recruitment campaign, but also in as mike mentioned um you know what's going on in the south and west then as well and and i think you know the fact that any propaganda machinery in ireland doesn't properly get going across um, the country until the first few months of 1915 doesn't actually help that um and even when this is set up you get these sort of short bursts of um, and pick up of recruitment but the numbers are still much lower uh, than in uh, Great Britain uh, as well. And, and as part, part of the book, actually, we we put together a full statistical monthly breakdown of recruiting numbers for each of the recruiting districts across the United Kingdom. And, and these are uh, tables, they're, they're handwritten tables uh, that are available from the National Archives in Kew which started August, August 1914, uh, and then with, uh, with the introduction of conscription uh, in Britain in April 1916. And, and really, they clearly demonstrate this stark difference. And, and again, we've got a few accompanying graphs that really demonstrate this in, in quite a visual way as, as to just where Ireland sits uh, in comparison to the rest of Great Britain.
3: One of the crucial differences between Ireland and and Great Britain is that Ireland is a vastly more agricultural economy. And the proportion of the population who derived their living from agriculture was over half um, at the turn of the century. The proportion of, of people who derived their living from agriculture in Britain was way below 20%. So it's much more rural and agricultural recruiting was Bad and below average right across the United Kingdom. So if you're much more rural, you're going to have a much lower recruiting rate in Ireland than in the rest of GB. That applies right across Ireland as well. So that rural recruiting is derisory in the south and west of Ireland, and it's derisory in Unionist Ulster as well. So this is a, a demographic, economic factor completely overrides Um And the other thing is that recruiting of farm workers in Ireland is lower than recruiting of farm workers in Great Britain because there's a vastly bigger proportion of small family or quasi-family farms in Ireland than in Britain. And the proportion of farm workers who are farm labourers in Ireland is much lower than in Britain. And it's farm labourers who tended to join up rather than farmers or farmer's sons or farmer's relatives. So got this lead weight on recruiting in Ireland right through the war and it's almost inescapable and as Will had said earlier they try and make specific recruiting appeals to Irish uh, Irish farmers they're almost wholly in effect um, and that applies and don't forget you know there's a boom in farm incomes and demand for farm products right across the UK in the war and a demand for more labour intensive tillage so so if anything the shortage of, of potential farm recruits gets greater as the war goes on
0: so, so what was the impact of the Easter Rising on recruitment from nineteen sixteen, and how did this shape? Uh, how did this shape the pattern of recruitment in Ireland for the rest of the war?
2: So, so again, you know, as, as Mike mentioned, recruitment in in the whole of Ireland had pretty much flatlined by February nineteen sixteen, and you know, fewer than fifteen hundred recruits are are forthcoming in in most months by by this point, and, and that had been the case. Um, for for quite a number of months, uh, apart from when the the second organised recruitment campaign uh, occurred in November nineteen fifteen, and really the Easter Rising does little to change that. And I think initially, when when we discovered that the three of us we were we were quite surprised that actually <laughs> there, there's no noticeable difference in uh, in numbers. And and really these sorts of numbers that the, the fifteen hundred a month. Uh, or roundabout there lasts until August 1918. So right through 1917, that's the case, and, and also through the back end of 1916 and, and into 1918. And, and then again, there's a jump, a very small jump in August 1918, when um, uh, the Irish Recruitment Council, or the Irish Recruiting Council, I should say, uh, was formed really as a last ditch attempt to stave off conscription uh, in the summer of that year. And, and again, no official Uh, recruiting machinery had existed since at at least the beginning of 1916 anyway. Um, So in some ways, the the low numbers are also hardly surprising, you know, officials aren't taking this seriously. And this was also a conscious decision, particularly after the Easter Rising, to just stop this official machinery um, from carrying on.
3: Okay, Um, I would just add to what Will said in a couple of respects. He, He mentioned that The official recruiting effort effectively stops after the Easter Rising. They don't want to do anything that's remotely sensitive. But the Easter Rising has a huge impact on Irish politics because it effectively um, leads to the effective complete destruction of of Irish constitutional nationalism and a rebirth of much more aggressive um, anti-war, anti-recruiting, Sinn Féinism. And you get... um, the collapse of the Irish Party. So the Irish Party in no way advocates recruiting after the Easter Rising. Um, but at the same time, and the Irish Party is collapsing, leaving a sort of vacuum in Irish politics filled by Sinn Féin. And what's interesting is that the fact that there's no official... Irish nationalist support for recruiting now and the fact that there's no official recruiting campaign now worth its name has very little impact at all on recruiting levels, which were already low and just dribbled down a little bit more. So it makes me think, it just realise how ineffective official recruiting and Irish party support for recruiting have been at least in 1915. Um, the other thing about the Easter Rising that's interesting is that you don't see a, a significant fall off in people going over to Britain for um, munitions work or general war work. So there is still a great deal of practical support for the war effort going on Anna, after the Easter Rising. And um, you see munitions workers going backwards and forwards across the English Channel, you see the support funds, the charitable funds, the nursing organisation still being supported. And there's quite a lot of survey evidence in Ireland, mostly by the police, um, at the end of 1916, about what is the general state of public opinion and support for the war. And the broad report from those surveys is support for the war still there. Support for serving soldiers is still quite large. Support for the art as an institution has become much more ambivalent and patchy, and in parts of the country, there is a distinct sense of, at best, indifference and rhetoric against the army, particularly because of its role in the executions after the rising and the mass arrests after the rising, um, is definitely waning.
1: I was gonna say a little uh if we're thinking about the sort of Ulster focus, we can say that the impact of the Easter Ride being somewhere as the limits of the Ulster Volunteer Force. Uh when the rising breaks out, Ulster volunteer attempt is made to mobilise the support the British government, and it seems that the numbers that, that turn out uh, and can be effectively mobilised are as little as hundred. So the Ulster Volunteer Force that was about hundred thousand strong uh, in the summer is then not a, a sort of base recruiter, of the the Easter Rising, uh, stopped at drill and parade. Um you can think, of course, of Easter 1915, <coughs> where the Belfast Regiment of the Irish National Volunteers had led a large Irish National Tear Parade in Dublin, and they led that. They were, say, best recruiting record of any of the Regiments. They, again, know Irish here Reaction to the Easter Rise. So while police reports still list Irish National Volunteers, Easter Volunteers out the war, and suggest that these are still... They have really petered out were the, the Easter Rising. Um, if we're thinking about the situation in Ulster, um, you might think think about two other things. One is the sort of battle of the Somme. Of course, through Vision takes very lazy. Those killed and wounded. Um and that seemed to lead to you know, a couple of differences. One be, why would I risk my life doing this? The other can be brother called killed a bit injured So there's an error. And of course the economy in Ulster very rapidly turned war work. So you get military shipping being ordered, Royal Navy, uh, monitor ships, get expanded arbor cargo ships that are ordered, and you get Counter Rocco right uh, going over war shell production. So the war patterns are right, these are right also Westman Parks.
0: However, we still get a small trickle of men still joining the British Armed Forces um, in the later part of the war, certainly from 1916 up to the Armistice. What was their motivation for joining?
1: okay well it's not in some ways such a small trickle we are still looking at thousands so part of recruitment peacetime recruitment rate still quite impressive but of course not impressive that are brought in by description and in, Britain. the motivations um, are a little tricky to work out you tend to end up in this rather difficult system that, that will has alluded to where you're sort of looking at recruiting propaganda and working out that this must have had some impact on men's uh, decisions to enlist if that's the case and i think that there is an argument for it then we can say that as the war goes on, that there is an increasing push for men to enlist in more specialist units, um, particularly things at like the Royal Air Force, with an idea that they can earn a trade so that this is quite a well job, they will come out as skilled bidders whatever. Um, there's also the issue amongst that of being in a sort of non-combatant unit, so a lot that is pushed is that if men join the RAF, uh, that they will be ground crew behind the lines and can't be compulsory transferred in the infantry so there's an attempt to do that. Some elements are, are there about enlistment in the Royal Navy, there's some quite interesting newspaper ads that talk about you know, what a man's life it is in the Royal Trawler section, which is all to do with minesweeping uh, in coastal waters around the, around the British Isles uh, so some of these are, are pushing very different messages from what you have seen in uh, 15. Having said that, you still get the call for um, enlist in the historic Irish regiments and there are still tugs at the heartstrings about the traditions uh that go back uh bizarrely that there's one about Spain and the royal irish rifles you know this brings us back to military hero of the uh 18th century uh period what that did for people sure attempt also to talk about the glory of the civilization and how they reinforced so there's an, a whole number of different that, that that are on there and that can score can i thrown something. This
3: business of the RAF, there was a, a big um, increase in monthly recruiting rates in from August 1918 on, And that's very linked to the beginning of active enlistment into the RAF as a separate service, which only began in Ireland in July of 1918. And in the three months where you get this big increase in recruiting, over around two thirds of all enlistments are into the RAF. And the campaign to get people to join, as Tim said, is absolutely about acquiring a trade, uh, getting a skill, uh, not being in danger, not being conscripted, not being transferred to the army, etc. And they, they they plan the campaign exactly on that basis. Of course, there's an element of the romance of flying as well of that. And they try and get aeroplanes to fly past recruiting this kind of, but the real recruitment into the RAF in that period is absolute in a sort of non-combatant get a trade rule. And it works. And it works on the same basis as to the official, what was called the war munitions volunteer scheme whereby if you went to work officially in this scheme in england in munitions work you could not be conscripted in england while you were in england um and again that's a very good way of getting irishmen to support the war the actual rate of army recruit at the end of 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 1918 barely shifts it it just carries on at that low monthly rate of between 800 and 1200 a month It, it just doesn't register on the radar as a significant change
0: So, in 1916, conscription was introduced in England, Wales and Scotland, but not Ireland. Why
3: was this so? Do you want to go Tim or Shly? Well, the first thing is conscription is a major recurring theme or fear of conscription throughout Nationalist Ireland, almost from the beginning of the war. Um, and there is, in fact, a, a, a small panic about the likely introduction of conscription as early as October 1914. Um, there was an old act called the Militia Ballot Act that it was rumoured was going to be reactivated to, to pull men into the army. And it, it's it's a load of baloney, This, but it leads to several hundred uh, men um, hastening rapidly to Queenstown to get on a boat to go to America um, to escape it. And again, a lot of press comment and derision of these men at the time. You get another likely scare about conscription at the time of the formation of the coalition government in May 1950. And again, absolutely building up to the introduction from October 1915 onwards, right through to January 1916, a huge amount of discussion, debate about whether conscription is going to come in. And there are two absolute recurring themes in Nationalists about conscription, right from the beginning of the war. One is, if you don't enlist voluntarily. If the voluntary system doesn't work, then we're going to get conscription. And that's going to be terrible. And the third, the second one is the imposition of conscription on Ireland when it has not yet been granted operating self-government is an outrage and will break the consensus that has been formed and will lead to resistance right across Ireland. And this view is expressed right across the spectrum of national opinion by Irish party speakers, even at recruiting meetings, they'll say that. um, And it's accepted effectively after months of lobbying by the government. There's a parliamentary occasion when Bonalore Law gets up on his feet in, in Parliament, I think, at the end of 1950 and says, if we introduce conscription in Ireland, it's going to lead to resistance and it's going to lead to a sufficient diversion of military resource simply to enforce conscription. So there was a, a recognition for most of the war that conscription could not be imposed on nationalist Ireland and that it was it would create more damage than it was worse. Um, It finally breaks down in 1980 um, with the the Ludendorff Offensive, when the British government has got radically to um, increase the range of people conscripted into the UK Armed Forces. Um, And the belief is that unless they introduce conscription in Ireland, they simply will have almost a mini revolt in British public opinion. Why on earth should we draft in older men, more married men, etc, to do this, when the Irish aren't even conscripted at all and so they announce and rush through um the introduction of conscription in Ireland um at the beginning of April 1918 and there is uproar in Ireland um there is um a, 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 an Irish nationalist version of, of the Ulster Covenant uh, the church the Irish party what's left of it Sinn Féin um uh, totally united a massive fundraising membership of, of the new Irish volunteers the, the precursor of, of the IRA um Shoots up, um, and there is a, a series of, a, well, a one day general strike as well. Um, and within a fort, the government backs down, um, realizes it's got a complete, stood up a complete hornet's nest, and announces um, that. They will defer the introduction of conscription in Ireland um, if Ireland can produce sufficient recruits in a six-month period. And so you get this huge hornet's nest stirred up called the conscription crate um, in Ireland, and then, you know, it it, it sort of subsides and, and you move back. What it did do was absolutely cement Sinn Féin as the leader of Irish nationalist opinion for the forthcoming years. Um, so conscription is, is is this theme right through the war. You get this final panicky crisis um, in in 1918, and then it becomes effectively a complete non-issue, as far as I understand.
1: Yes, I mean, it's simply to think of the, the practicalities a little more. Um, you'll be aware of the, the sort of idea that the British government stands at par, authority, in the right state during the First World War. But the conscription system, as it was in Great Britain, relies on a lot of localism, relies on military service tribunals to stream those who have objections. And of course, these aren't all conscientious objectors, as we think often. These aren't people saying, oh, I will balance. These are often men saying, well, you know, I'd love to go and fight. Uh, in the Great War, but, you know, I'm a widower with three children to bring up, or I'm running the shop by myself, uh, and this is what goes on there. And what we get with these local tribunals is normally local councillors, trade unionists, retired army officers. It's clear that in Ireland that system just can't work. Irish parliamentary party representatives are not going to sit in these tribunals. The labour movement is not going to sit on them. Uh, The military officers who might be prepared to vote will be utterly unctuous. So what would what would be asked would be a very harsh compulsory system, bringing back some of these sort of ideas that about a colonial um, style uh, conscription system. And frankly, a lot of those in the Dublin Castle administration, British Army, conclude well. Given the amount of troops and police that are going to be needed to enforce all this, uh, it's better. Just to leave things as they are, that it would be obtained. And the numbers that came into the army, well, how could they be dealt with by the army itself? Would there be a number of execution, hope, fall into line? Uh, Would they be put into non combatant home defence rules where they weren't anyway? Uh, So, really, the army takes it this is just too much hassle. There's also a danger in in exposing the two Ireland's in that Ulster unionists generally say they're in favour of conscription. This is at least is what's said publicly. Behind the scenes, a lot are saying, well, you know, the number of our supporters that have already enlisted and the number that are in war industries or agriculture means that it wouldn't be affected by the anyway. But there looks to be this terrible danger that you will get a conscription system that will sort of look on the, the surfaces of it sort of working in northeast Ulster and won't work anywhere else in the country and that would then be a precursor to a petition uh, settlement. So that's all seen as incredibly nasty at all by the British government.
0: Two areas that are not often considered in the context of Irish recruitment during the Great War are the recruitments of officers, and secondly, the recruitments of Irish women to military services such as the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps. Could you tell me a bit about each? Can we start with officers?
1: Okay, if we're looking at the officer corps, it's a bit tricky to work out just how many Irishmen serve uh, in the officer corps. and is a problem uh, Irish and more broad in some ways. If you have somebody who is uh, Irish but is being educated at a public school in England and therefore has should address and applies for through the war office as everybody has to, it's not all obvious that they are Irish. And of course, they can be posted to any regiment in the army. So that's quite tricky. In um, round figures, we're probably looking at about 8,000. Irishmen who served as officers during the, the First World War. And there are a number of, of aspects to look at uh, that. Before the First World War, there is a tradition of the Anglo Irish gentry serving the, the British Army. This is more familiar to many people if they think about the Ulster Field Marshal, the Second World War, Montgomery, uh, and so on. They're all serving your officers in the First World War, of course. Um, that can be overestimated. It's probably the case that the Anglo Irish gentry were given roughly a portion to their share of population population, uh, but that's certainly a long tradition in some families. I think the Brokeborough end up with uh, something like 26 male members of the family serving in the First World War, so there's obviously family traditions built with uh, some of the Gentry families. Before the war, the territorial force generally hadn't been extended to Northern Ireland uh, or, the, sorry, to, to Ireland full stop, but um, it had been in terms of officer training corps units being set up. Now they were established at four schools, uh, Campbell College, College, which you'll know well, Belfast, uh, two schools in Dublin, uh, St. Drew's and St. and Court Grammar School, and also to Trinity College, Dublin Queen, Belfast Royal College of as well. So there were officer training corps before the war, and then it served where lighted like, mission November, and the outbreak of war. There's then the sort of political commissions aspect, uh, which is particularly evidence with the Ulster Volunteer Force, where a number of men uh, either are sort of acting officers uh, in Ulster Division camps in September, or actually enlist in the ranks uh, but serve as, as acting officers and they then get their commissions ser- confirmed in most cases end of August. So these are men who have often brought in a certain number of volunteers with them uh, or have been seekers within the, the Ulster Volunteer Force. We get a, a small element of that National Volunteers as well. John Ray, who had mentioned a Skillen, uh, he gets a commission captain for bringing in his 67 crew. But then, with the innate sensitivity that we would expect from the War Office, he's packed off to the King's African Rifles, so is not used further in recruiting activity in the First World War. Though, ironically, he ends up at the regiment depot of the Royal and Skillen Fusiliers in 38 39, managing recruitment there. So, uh, funny how uh, it's on the one. Um, as the, the war develops, the Ends of Court Regiment, uh, which is essentially an officer training corps unit it sets up a, a recruiting base in Dublin and uh, there's a, a pretty large number of that, uh, and get commissions. That is also played on after the conscription crisis, when a lot of the advertising that comes out talks about Irishmen being able to ask for officer training, so this idea you wouldn't want to serve in the ranks of the army if you're from a class background, you know, the officer route is open to you in a way, which of course it wasn't uh, really open to conscripts. So there, there are different sort of paths there that are followed uh, by officers, uh, and there is sort of a danger of double counting, because, of course, some men enlist in the ranks serve for a period of months or years and voted as officers, so there's there's sure that you end up uh, counting some who enlists and recruits formally that way. It's getting a later on to be worried about. In terms of female recruitment, we didn't really have a great deal on this in the book because the figures are elusive, but since the book went to press, of Sacrifice, a new book has come out by Barbara Walsh, which I would refer people to, Irish servicewoman in the Great War. And Barbara's work is, is interesting and uh, deeply researched and it shows us the limits of the records of the First World War. She can identify 400 Irish women who enlisted in what was Queen Mary's Army Auxiliary Corps. Um, two things to say about that. The first is that, as with a lot of the male service records, a lot of these service records were destroyed in the day so the number was undoubtedly higher than 400, at least double, I would think. Possibly we could factorise it by 8 or 10. Uh, we might have 5,000 Irish women uh, who served in the British Grey. The other side is to say that Queen Mary's Army Auxiliary Corps rather says it all. These women are not enlisted as soldiers. They are enlisted as auxiliaries and do not have combatant role or Jobs, uh jobs, tight driving, cooking, cleaning. Uh, many often are very happy that they think again, new opportunities, different lives, and being pushed back into the very domestic sphere of cooking and cleaning. Uh, so the the female recruitment is is fairly limited. There are clearly drives, and I've seen references to these, particularly in Ulster, where you get Queen Mary's Army Auxiliary Corps, uh, sort of parades in places like Bangor and Lisburn, uh, which are then targeted purely in recruiting women. But the the Queen Mary's Army Auxiliary Corps does not organise specifically Irish companies so women are then spread throughout the organisation which again makes it very difficult to establish uh, exact numbers coming from Ireland
0: and finally gentlemen where can people learn more about your research?
1: Well, the the book is available from all good bookshops, as the phrase goes, and Liverpool University Press Direct. Uh, There should be copies in libraries, Northern Ireland, uh, in due course. Uh, Covid is is creating various problems there. Um, And otherwise, you you can look at our our, our university websites and World's uh, website, the National Archives.
0: And I must say, it is available for Christmas as we are approaching the festive season.
1: Uh, The ideal stocking filler, yes.
0: Thank you, (laughs) gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time. Not at all. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition.